Barry, we are back and I would ask you how your week was, but we just recorded a 30-minute special of the Apple event, which I'm sure everyone's already listened to. We're well into the smooth-flowing conversation of today, episode 45. It's been a roller coaster, Chad, a real roller coaster. For the, the whole night, we've been watching this, very excited, and so we're trying to get things more calm after the yeah. Apple event. Of course, we love that <laughs> stuff, but it's really good to be back, really good to be back here for a normal episode of Across the Pond. If you're here for the first time from that event, yep. welcome. Welcome to the tribe. It's yeah, good to yeah. have you here, and Chad, it's good to see your face again. Thanks, Barry. You too. Welcome to Across the Pond. So loads to discuss as always, Barry, but have you had a good week nevertheless? I have so far, Chad. Today's been a bit of a rough one. Today I haven't been as productive as I would like. It's one of those very lethargic days. And so I'm trying to be kind to myself like I've been telling myself (laughs) and uh, realizing that tomorrow we can start again, right? That's a beautiful thing. Go to sleep. You wake up the next day. You start from a clean slate. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, no, all good this side. Thank you very much. I just wanted to, I guess, reiterate something else that we've chatted about, Barry, and that is the importance of momentum. So just start tomorrow morning, make the bed, and uh, hopefully the momentum will run away with your day. Exactly. A couple small wins, try and win the yep. morning. You see, I know all of this stuff, Chad, but it's <laughs> got to be put into practice. That's the trick. That's the trick. Absolutely. Well, let's take a look back on the week that was. The week that was. So this week, we're chatting about COVID once again. Unfortunately, we've seen a little bit of a spike on that side of the pond, Chad. In the UK, we've seen some kind of scary numbers coming out. It looks like some of the cases are starting to rise once again. Um, So I'm wondering, what what does it look like that side? What's the morale like? Um, What have you seen on that side of the pond? So there was an announcement. Obviously, we've, we've seen this kind of trend, this upward trend again, and everyone's a little bit worried, I guess. We've had the announcement, and essentially, the socializing rules have been clarified. So you can now only meet in groups of six people, and that is whether inside or outside. We've spoken about this before, Barry, where I suppose when you enforce all of these different rules and regulations, it becomes a bit confusing. With all of these various updates at different points in time, people start to lose track. And so the government have decided it's time to, I guess, clarify this and simplify one rule that, I guess, you know, creates that universal understanding. And for me, I feel like it's very reasonable enforcement. It's not going to affect me too much. I was kind of in those kinds of circles anyway after lockdown. Um, So I think it's pretty reasonable. But in terms of that event, I think we definitely need to just talk about, I suppose, what's happening on the side. And they've noticed that there's been a strong uptick in the 20 to 29 age group. Now, obviously, we know you and I, Barry, we're in that restless uh, kind of age group. We (laughs) want to be out and about, right? We want to spread our legs and we want to get back to normal. So it makes sense to me that we see uh, an increase in this age group. But at the same time, you know, that is a lot less fatal than the, the groups before, right, in the, in, the first, in the first wave. So although the numbers are increasing, I think it is important to understand the dynamics at play here, um, which, which, yeah, for me are interesting. And I suppose when you take that total number and map it against the trajectory of other countries, you look at a country like Spain, who is looking at their second peak right now, pretty much. And the UK is really at a worrying level. Uh, so I suppose this briefing came at the right time. Yeah, I think it's much needed, right, to kind of allay some of the complacency that might have been creeping into society as yep. we start to figure out, like, how do we move forward from this pandemic? I think a lot of us have got so sick of this pandemic that we kind of <laughs> decided for ourselves that it's over yep. and we're going to go back to life as normal. Yeah. And it's a good reminder for us that this thing's not over. It's still with us and we still have to be like cautious and still have to be like thoughtful about how we live our lives. I think, like you say, that 20 to 29 age group, we are very overconfident <laughs> because we haven't seen the same fatality rates, yep. right? We haven't been as effective 
expected as say the older older generation, but at the same time we have to be looking after the people around us. So it's not just us; it's who do we give the the virus to. And so I think that point of kind of clarifying those rules makes a lot of sense, and kind of making sure that everyone knows where they stand and all. The, is the UK and the rest of the world, are they like really looking after each other and setting in place the right social procedures to try and make sure we manage this as best we can? Have yeah. you seen it enforced around town, Chad? Do you get that sense that people are taking it seriously or are they kind of laughing it off? Well, from the discussions I've had with Circle of Friends, I think people are taking this a lot more seriously than the previous regulations because there was a stress placed on the fact that there's going to be increased enforcement, increased fines, for anyone in that group of six or more, sorry, anyone in the group of more than six. Um, and yeah, essentially, it's now been put in law, uh, which is different to before. So you are actually breaking the law if you're in a group of more than six people, whether you're inside your home or outside. And there's a lot of encouragement for neighbors to report their neighbors who are not complying with regulation, etc., etc. So I think people are taking this a lot more seriously. Uh, but at the same time, I still think it's quite a reasonable enforcement to put in place. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think it kind of it finds that balance between yeah. wanting to live a semi-normal life without going crazy, right? And so I think it, it does make sense to me. I think six is a good number. Yep. Um, and so hopefully that people just take it seriously, like you say, and things can get back un under control quite quickly. Um, but at the same time, if you let this thing go and you get it to kind of the exponential curve once again, yeah. then you have to fight a whole nother lockdown. And no one wants that. So I think it's in everyone's best interest yeah. to kind of buckle down for, for a little bit and make sure they do the right thing and uh, keep it in a manageable level so that you don't have to go through another one of those periods of lockdown. Completely agreed. And th the other thing is we're approaching winter, right? And uh, we've seen around the world this virus does seem to peak at the times of, of cold. Uh, we saw what happened in South Africa and your changes, I suppose, to the numbers, and that was around your winter period. Um, so it's a concerning period of time, and I personally won't be surprised if we do find ourselves in another lockdown. Yeah, definitely. I think that this virus is going to be with us for a while. We still haven't got a vaccine yeah. other than the Russia uh, <laughs> drama and kind of rumors that side of the world. Yeah. But the vaccine still isn't here. And so we have to be very like realistic about what's happening right now. And uh, like you said, going into winter, it really is a challenging period because people's immune systems are even weaker than usual. And so you have really to look after yourself during the winter period um, and make sure you're taking care of the people around you as well. Chad, should we talk about these contact tracing apps? Yeah, I yeah. see that the UK are bringing, bringing one into place later this in about a week or so, I think. Yeah. And South Africa has just announced ours a couple of days ago. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the app looks like that side and what people are people actually using it. Yeah, so I haven't actually seen or used the app at all, but I know we chatted a bit about it in the initial stages when they rolled this app out in the Isle of Wight. That was the kind of test pilot basis for this app. Um, but I, I guess the technology must be working if they're using it. It, it must be working. We obviously spoke about that Bluetooth type technology that lets the devices talk to each other in a way uh, to alert people anonymously uh, that you've come in close contact with who have tested positive after the fact. And so I think it is a powerful tool. I think it's definitely part of our long-term recoverability um, in, in getting over this uh, pandemic or at least learning to live with it and control it. Um, so I, I think it's exciting on my side. I'm, I'm definitely happy to see it rolled out because if it is rolled out and if it is working effectively, a thing that a lot of my friends are not understanding is that we'll be able to do more. We'll have more freedoms because there is control. There is, uh, you know, actual tracking. There's numbers, there's data going out about. And the more of that that you have, the more of a kind of normal life we can lead.
Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely think so. And, and that's kind of the education that needs to happen on yep. the ground so people understand this is why the app's in place, this is why it's important, and this is why you need to do it. Definitely. Because as, as we've chatted about in the past, you need a critical mass of people in order to make this effective. It doesn't help if only 30% of your population have got the app. You really want a critical mass of people to have it, and therefore it unlocks all the, the benefits of that data and the benefits of what the government can do with it to understand exactly where the hotspots are, to understand exactly what's happening, and then help to manage the disease on this side of the pond i've been very impressed with kind of the talk about the privacy which has been really okay. good to see so the, they really are focusing heavily on the fact that you're not giving up any personal information everything right. is de-anonymized it's encrypted it's very very privacy focused which i'm very glad right. to see and so i'm hoping that south africa is going to kind of take this seriously and i'm trying to talk to all my friends to get the app <laughs> so that they can be part of the solution yeah. um, because that that data is all we have to track what's actually happening on the ground We've seen in South Africa the number of tests that are, are happening are, are going down every single day, right. and that worries me a little bit. And so I'm hoping that this data will be a great like source of information that we understand exactly what's happening, especially in our rural townships, in our more remote areas of South Africa. We need this kind of data to understand what's going on so we can make the right choices going forward as we try and rebuild this limping economy. Yeah, completely agree. And, and I, I like that. I like that you're actually going out, having those conversations with friends, and trying to lead from the front, I suppose, which is something that a lot of us hold back on. We have all of these opinions to ourselves, uh, and ultimately we, we judge others and benchmark others, uh, you know, behind closed doors. But it's really nice to to hear that approach where you're actually briefing some of your friends, trying to get the, the messaging out there right yourself. Because ultimately you have that effect and you can make that difference. Exactly. And, and the only reason I'm doing it is because I'm confident in what they've done privacy-wise, yep. right? So a lot of this discussion was how are you going to implement this? What kind of data are you going to be siphoning up? How are you going to process it? And so if it wasn't the case, then I would have had a different opinion completely. Sure. But from what I've read and what I've seen so far, I think I'm quite, I'm quite impressed with what they've done. And I think it's the right way to move with an app going forward. So let's just see how many people actually use it, Chad. Let's see how many people actually in, yep. like install it on their phone and and uh, from there, we'll determine whether it can actually be of use to us or if it's just going to be a gimmick that doesn't get used. Yeah, and let's see how effective it is, especially in those townships, Barry, where it is a challenge, the access to smart devices. It's a challenge. We've got these townships where, you know, there are people who don't have bank accounts kind of thing. It's a very informal type of sector. Um, so whether that's actually going to be able to even roll out, do you think that's a challenge? It definitely is a challenge. I mean, the app is not super sophisticated, so it right. can run on Android devices, but obviously not the lower, lower end of things yep. because it needs Bluetooth. Um, so I think I think we sometimes underestimate how many phones are actually out there right. today. I think a phone is a very, very crucial part of anyone's life, no matter what your income level. And some of the very, very lowest Android phones can still can still do Bluetooth and yep. those sorts of things. So I still think it's going to be okay. But like you say, we don't actually know until we actually test it, right? Until yep. we actually get it out there and see what kind of impact it can have and what kind of footprint it can have. Then we'll have a better sense as to whether it's worth the investment, worth the time, or if we had to look for a different solution. Absolutely. Well, it's exciting nevertheless so we'll keep our eyes peeled on the space uh, and yeah if there's any of those apple a14 processors doing this kind of data <laughs> i know we're going to be very happy barry moving on then uh, to the next one which is david beckham's guild esports to float on london stock market now these clickbait titles really are really good at, at grabbing your interest and getting you in <laughs> Only when I looked at the article, read right at the bottom, did I find that David Beckham actually owns a minority stake, but it's a significant minority stake, but no one knows <laughs> how much of that stake there is. Don't you find that interesting? 
I love that term, significant <laughs> minority. That's that's amazing. That is really great. Oh, these clickbait titles, Chad, they know how to bring us in and they know how to bend the truth just enough yep. or omit just enough information to make it okay. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, they knew David Beckham brings in the clicks. It's true. And so he did. And so anyway, let's just give it our three-minute uh, point of discussion on Across the Pond because <laughs> I found the title catchy enough to, to at least click on. But I guess it's it's just a wider discussion of esports. Now, we've spoken about it before, but I do want to speak about it even more because I think another wave is about to hit us of esports. Uh, there's a couple of things to discuss about tonight. I might even need to do a little bit of Googling in between, Barry, because I didn't do my homework completely. <laughs> um, but this is interesting. A guild uh, that, yeah, maybe David Beckham has found a little bit interesting to put a little bit of money into. Essentially, they're looking to raise some funding by going public, listing on the on the stock exchange. Uh, their offering includes Fortnite, uh, Counter-Strike Go, Rocket League, FIFA, all of the big games. Um, but I think he here where we, we actually need to talk about this is, is the kind of money in the sport. Now, the prize and sponsorships run into the millions. And they say that some of the audiences of these events exceed those of Wimbledon or even Tour de France, um, which is quite staggering. And I, I guess a couple of years ago, you would never have even thought that something like this is possible. It's absolutely crazy. And it really is the future of like online gaming is these sorts of things becoming more mainstream. I remember seeing a video of a stadium in Korea, which yeah. had like 60,000 people <laughs> in this giant football stadium watching the guys play in the middle of the pitch. And, and that for me was the moment when I was like, oh, wait, mm -hmm. this is not just a niche thing. This is not just a nerd kind of hobby. This is a serious, serious ec economic kind of driver and a Definitely. huge like piece of sport that's coming online. I've been a little bit surprised that we haven't seen something during quarantine come up, like some, some breakout superstar or some mainstream league or something. So I think that's coming down the pipe. I reckon in the next year or two, we're going to see some real big changes in the space. Okay. And there's a lot of people investing into these teams, into these leagues, into these tech providers. Places like Twitch are going to absolutely boom. And for, for, for us who, I mean, for someone like me who, who never really games, I game, I do some FIFA with some friends sometimes, but not really serious gaming. It's a bit out of my wheelhouse. But when I see the money, like you say, when I see the amount of investment and the amount of stuff going into this, this, this new world, it, you make, it makes you realize that I feel a little bit old and this is clearly what's coming down the pipe. Definitely. You're completely right. And uh, I'm interested to see what those, uh, I guess, changes that have happened during lockdown we're going to see coming up in the future. But in terms of new stars during lockdown, I know we had our episode with Nat Chats where we interviewed Nat Chats. And at that time of the episode, which I think is a few weeks back, I don't remember now, Barry, um, but she had 180,000 subscribers at that point in time. And she now has 324,000. Um, so if you haven't listened to that episode, anyone, while you tuned in here, it's a great one to go back and listen to our interview of Natchat. You'll certainly enjoy it. And just, I guess, casting an eye on this world that for a lot of people is uh, just an unexplored realm. That's interesting you bring up that because in my mind, I don't know if it's the same in yours, I see a difference between the streaming world and the esports sure. world sure. In, in some way. So the streaming world seems a lot more personality driven. Like you, Obviously, a lot of them are good at the games yeah. and they're really good at what they do. But a lot of it is building community and being a personality and more like an influencer type sure. role. Whereas the esports that I, that I see, like David Beckham and, and that sort of world, is like guys who practice 12 hours a day and live yeah, in these yeah. team houses where all they sure. do is play Fortnite all the time. Yeah. And so I think that's an interesting split between the two. And I wonder, I think they're both going to be huge. And yeah. obviously the streaming is ginormous. But it's a question of if you're a kid growing up and you're really good at these games and you go up to your dad and you say, listen, 
Um, I know you don't want me to sit on my computer all day, but I'm one of the best in the world, and there's a career now. There's a real career in this in this thing. I wonder if an esports career is going to be more acceptable than, say, the streaming for a community uh, kind of career. What do you reckon on that? Yeah, you're right, Barry. And to very politely, um, I, I guess, bring me back into line because you're right. I did go off topic there slightly uh, talking about no, streaming. It's, it's not off topic, uh, but I suppose it is. It is a subgenre, I guess, and uh, and definitely one that is yeah. that is, I guess, developing concurrently. When you have the stars playing on the world stage, uh, this game that you can ultimately yourself play in your living room and stream to thousands of people, um, I definitely think that they're going to have a very close effect on each other. Um, but I agree with you. I think as parents are seeing that you know people are making money and people are actually having full on full blown careers out of out of doing these professional gaming, um, I definitely think it is going to be something we're going to see a whole lot more of, just like any other sport. But there's so many variations. So for me, when you look at a sport like rugby or soccer or cricket, you know, there's, let's say, four or five major ones that we can point. Uh, whereas here, there's all of these different games that can fit into any of these ecosystems. And ultimately, they just need to decide which one they're playing on the day. That's the beauty of the internet is this idea, like you can build a community around a very niche thing. So one particular game can have this absolutely cult-like following yep. in this very strange niche and can really make a go for itself. And that long tail kind of ability wasn't possible when you had three or four TV channels and you had to be one of the mainstream things in order to get attention. So right now, whatever game you want to play, there's a community around Around yep. that game that is absolutely fanatical about it and if you're the best player in that game or you're the best like personality in that game you can make a very serious career for yourself and so it's another one of these things the internet is opening up the world to so many more communities than we realized and it's one of the better parts of it is that Definitely. this idea that whatever you're into whether no matter how weird it seems to other people whatever you're into there's a community out there that you can get a get to be a part of and really meet like-minded individuals have a great time and have the sporting heroes like the Michael Jordan of your one computer game. That's, that's, that's amazing. It's so true. And they may not be as widely known as uh, Michael Jordan in the popular culture, certainly, but uh, within that community, uh, they can be superstars. And that's the other wonderful, wonderful thing here is that you're not subjecting a whole society on one sport, one popular sport. People can decide what they're interested in. And I think that is a really, really positive thing to see. Um, and certainly even just to be able to play those games with family and friends, um, you know, I certainly enjoy logging onto my PlayStation 4 and playing Modern Warfare with, uh, with my friends. Uh, but every single time you play, though, it's just staggering at how often they update these games and how many new things there are. It can honestly be all too consuming. Yeah, it's very addictive. It's very, very addictive. And that, and that's the fine line between this thing, right? Yeah. It's so good. These games are so good these days that it's very easy to lose hours and days and weeks of your life to these <laughs> games. And so you've really got to be careful as to like, what are you gaming for? If it's a release, if it's like you say, if it's a social connection with yeah. your friends, if it's kind of in moderation, that's amazing. But I really feel for the parents of today because you've got to <laughs> tread a very, very fine line between yeah. what is acceptable and what is not. Yeah. And even in the adult world, like you can get caught up in these communities and these worlds and not actually make progress in your real life yep. but you, you gamify things you level up in your in your games online yep. and you want to be a little bit careful about mixing those two worlds and when we get to vr one day that's going to be even yep. harder absolutely that's such an important point barry uh you know i hadn't even thought that far uh, but you're right i think it goes really really far into some people's lives when you talk about uh, progress in real life progress uh, you know not in real life Ultimately, you've got these games like Modern Warfare, the one that I'm talking about, that resets every season. Um, so you'll get somebody who's at level, I don't know, I don't even know where the levels are. Let's say he's right at the top, he's feeling good, he's on top of the world, he's actually walking on the street with the 
stride in his step. He wakes up and there's a new season. <laughs> and I personally think some people would be struggling with even mental health issues. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think the mental, the mental strain is going to be something we're only going to see in years to come. Yep. We don't know what kind of damage is being done. We don't know what's happening. Obviously, there's been, there's been talk of increasing depression, increasing anxiety, sure. those sorts of things because of the, the tech world. But it's hard to, to narrow that down to exactly what's causing it. And so while gaming is an amazing like stress reliever and like a, a lot of fun for a lot of people and really is an amazing kind of piece of tech, we've got to be careful about how it impacts our human lives. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to know what that impact is going to be on a kind of societal level until a couple of decades in the future when we can look back on this time and think back to what happened and why it caused whatever it's going to cause. So fascinating because we're seeing these kind of cogs turning today. Um, and it, these are definitely setting up our discussion points for the next years. Barry, let's then move on to something else that happened this past week and something that I found terrifying. It shocked me into the reality again of living in South Africa. It's one of those where as soon as you <laughs> leave South Africa, right, you, you get used to walking out on the streets. Fine to walk out on the streets at midnight and not even worry too much because you feel safe. Until you're back in South Africa, you land again, and ultimately your instinct switches on again. You're looking around you. You're paranoid again. Uh, and you actually realize how much of your subconscious this actually affects. Yeah, it's, I, find it, I find it amusing only because I'm desensitized to this yep. stuff because I've just lived here my whole life, yep. right? And I, I have the same experience when I'm in Europe. I sometimes will walk around with that Joburg mindset yep. of like looking around. And then I have to stop myself and be like, hold on, like just relax. You're actually, you're actually going to be fine. Um, but that instinct, like you talk yep. about, all South Africans will know when you walk around the streets and you, you've, got, you've got the eyes in your back of your head. Even when yep. you're driving, you're very, very aware of what's going on around you because of the crime problem. And so these videos that we, that we reference are, are terrible and they're horrible, but we see them so often this side, unfortunately. It's one of those things that's it's a daily part of life in, in, in Joburg and, and in Cape Town as well. And so I think... For a lot of people outside of South Africa, these things are shocking and very, very like terrible, and they do a lot of harm for our reputation because obviously it, it makes tourists not want to come through. And as South Africans, unfortunately, we get desensitized to this stuff mm. because it happens so often. It's so true. Uh, so this particular video that I'm referencing, and I know you're right, Barry, we see these come out every single week, but I haven't seen one like this before, which is, which is why it's different. I often see people releasing videos from their CCTV footage at home of somebody breaking into their driveway, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or in a shop or whatever the case is. Uh, but for me, this was a family, right? So this was two or three people with their little girl uh, at a restaurant having a meal in Johannesburg, not too far from you know, where I used to live. And essentially a guy jumps, there's even a railing barrier. He's at a restaurant. The restaurant has a railing, a barrier around to, to restrict uh, you know, these kinds of things from happening. And nevertheless, you get somebody who jumps over the barrier, grabs this little girl by the neck. Um, and, and luckily, there's a good Samaritan there who clearly has been attending gym during lockdown, um, who, who straps this guy onto the floor and you know, manages to actually stop this action from happening. But for me, what a world do we live in if you can't go to the shops or can't go to a restaurant with your little ones without worrying about them getting taken away from you? Yeah, it's horrific. It really is horrific. And, and it leads to so much more kind of anxiety and paranoia when you see these sorts of things in real life. Um, and so I think for South African, it's it's obviously heartbreaking because mm. a lot of these things are are absolutely terrible, terrible things to withhold. Um, and the, the crime here, it, it gets bad because we don't have trust in our police, right? Yeah. When we think about our police system, we don't have trust that if something like this happens, we'll be able to figure it out. Definitely. Sometimes it feels like you're on your own. It feels like, like it doesn't matter what, what happens because, and that's 
how the criminals get so brazen. They can do things like this, which seem just absolutely brazen and brash, but they can get away with it sometimes. Yep. And so that's why they do it. And so it's that mix of the lack of trust in the, in the police system because of the corruption and all that good stuff with the actual criminals that, that operate throughout the cities. And things like this are different to, to crimes of like desperation, right? Crimes sure. of desperation when they're yep. stealing food or stealing like money or yep. whatever the story is. It's very different to these sorts of crimes, which are much more malicious. And so I think it's you know, it's really sad to see. Sad to see, definitely. Um, but I mean, I am very happy to see that there has been pretty quick legal action taken, uh, which in South Africa, the legal system is really, really slow at the best of <laughs> slow, times, yeah. Barry. Um, but, you know, this has certainly, certainly been quite a quite a prompt uh, response. And uh, for me, that's certainly a good thing to see. Yeah, definitely. We, we need more of it. We need our justice system to really work as fast as it can. I think our constitution is really good. And so hopefully yep. we enforce it, enforce it seriously. Um, but like you say, things take time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, completely agreed. Now, Barry, let's then move on to the last little thing that happened this past week. Uh, you've found a little thing about Uber and our favorite topic to discuss, sustainability. Yeah, definitely. So Uber, of course, is this giant behemoth. They control hundreds of thousands of vehicles all around the world doing trips every single second of every day. And uh, we, we're talking a lot about sustainability of cars, like obviously the Tesla discussion, bringing yeah. electric cars into the markets. And Uber are stepping behind this kind of sustainability target in the same way that Apple is doing and really making the intentions known. And so their CEO came out and announced quite a bold claim, Chad. They said they're committed to being a fully zero emission platform by 2040. Okay. So in 20 years, they want to be at a zero, zero carbon footprint, which is a serious, serious claim to make when you think about all the cars around the world they're yep. using. And even more so in their developed markets, so the US, Canada, and Europe specifically, they want to be 100% of their rides in electric cars by 2030, yep. which is only 10 years away. Yep. And that is a very bold claim to make. Um, and so I, I wonder if they're going to be able to do it, Chad. It is really bold. It really, really is, especially because of the infrastructure. Is the infrastructure actually going to be ready? And I'm going to only look at the 2030 because let's go for the most ambitious. Let's aim for, for the moon <laughs> and land on the stars. Um, but because, yes, I mean, that's the discussion that we've been having. And ultimately, we've, we've spoken about some of the mechanisms and uh, efforts happening in the UK also to... I guess, get ready for this future wave of fully electric. Um, but it is, it's bold. It is, it's bold. It's, it's less than 10 years away. Um, and so for me, it is fascinating, but I certainly think it's a step in the right direction. And hopefully in these big cities, the infrastructure will be there to meet it. I don't know whether fast charging, I don't know how, how good is fast charging. Will you be able to finish off with a trip, quickly go and fast charge your car to you know, keep you going for the rest of the day? Uh, in the same way that people can just get a top up of fuel and, you know, I guess work longer shifts uh, than otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And infrastructure is going to be difficult because Uber doesn't own any of the infrastructure, Definitely. right? So they're going to be relying on the makers of these cars to have these, these charger networks. And so we've seen Tesla have got the supercharger network across some of their major cities, and it seems to be doing all right. But it's still small in scale compared to the number of Uber rides that are happening all the time. Yeah. So it's all very well for Tesla to have eight chargers at a supercharger, but in San Francisco. <laughs> but when you're thinking about the, the whole of Europe or the whole of oh, the US, okay. and you've got to be able to cater all of these Uber rides, how do you do it? The second thing that makes me a little bit skeptical is this idea of Uber don't own these cars, right? 
So ideally, the, the guy, the driver owns the car. And so are you going to force that guy to sell his petrol car and buy an electric car, which is potentially more expensive up front or has got lots of weird tax incentives? And how are you going to manage that supply and demand? Because it's all very well to say this, but then your drivers aren't your employees. So you can't kind of force them like unnecessarily. So yep. I think it's a weird one, especially when you try to keep the demand and supply at a reasonable level, Chad. Completely agree. I do think that in some of these locations, they're actually going to be bound by the governments. Ultimately, uh, the citizens of the, the countries themselves aren't going to be able to own non-electric cars, certainly in the UK. But I think that's 15 years away. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, we'll have to check back on that. But yeah, I think that is one of the forces at play here. Um, and essentially, the next question is, do the rides become more expensive for us? That is the question, right? And so as far as I understand, based on what the CEO announced, they're going to launch something called Uber Green, okay. which is this idea that for $1 extra per ride, you'll be able to summon an electric car instead of a petrol one. All right. So that kind of feels like the, the incentive right now to do it. But again, it really depends on how many electric cars are on the road. So until we get to a stage where there's a mass, mass amount of electric cars doing these rides, then you wonder what the price of an Uber ride is actually going to become. Yep. Um, and so there's so many moving parts in this, in this discussion, it's hard to get a foothold as to exactly what's going to happen. That's why it's, it's, it's a very difficult claim to kind of verify because I don't know yep. what's possible, especially because in my South African context, it feels like 100 years away <laughs> compared to what it might look like in London or San Francisco or, or Beijing, for example. Yep. And so I think it's difficult for me to get a real sense as to whether this is realistic or not. They want to invest $800 million into into this transition, but I don't know what they're going to spend that on. I don't know what that's going to be going to be pushed towards, and that's not enough to take a whole Uber fleet to to all electric. I mm. think that's it's not enough money, and so I don't know where it's going to come from, Chad. And I'm excited to see what happens. I think it's good to see, but I'm a little bit skeptical. It is interesting, especially when you benchmark it on what you're seeing on your roads uh, versus what we're seeing <laughs> here in the UK. And I guess that is why this podcast is so interesting is because we do have different perspectives because we are seeing different things now i don't know have you ever actually driven a fully electric car i have never driven an electric car no well i that's why i asked because on this side um, i actually had a friend who, who visited me a few weekends ago and we decided we were going to go to richmond park which is a beautiful park here in london and for me it's actually a gift to cyclists like london was literally saying cyclists here you are, and it's something that needs to be cherished, <laughs> and it is a wonderful park. Uh, nevertheless, we went there and didn't really factor in the time it was going to take to go back home. Now, there's a service called Zipcar, Barry, which I pulled up my city mapper, which is kind of an alternative to Google Maps, if you'd like, or, or Apple Maps, um, and ultimately saw there was a Zipcar near me. Now, what this means is you can go into your Zipcar app, obviously, if you are a member and you've been vetted and all of that kind of stuff, they've got your driver's license details, etc. You can walk up to the car, unlock it from your phone, step into it and only be charged per kilometer, ultimately drop it off anywhere you'd like so long as it's in this zone, which is quite big in London. Um, and they gave us a fully electric car as well. So it was my first experience driving one. And uh, it was a Golf, it was an e-Golf. And man, oh man, does this thing have some kick in it. 
<laughs> oh, I'm jealous, Chad. I'm jealous. I've seen all these videos of people test driving all these things, and I really would love to test drive one of them. So that sounds amazing. I yep. think electric cars are definitely the future. I think everyone can see that they're just objectively better cars, yep. right? And so that 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 transition is coming, and that future is coming. But the question is, how long is it going to take yep. to get there? Yep. So so that gives you a little bit more comfort, maybe that in places like Europe, like things are maybe closer to that kind of 2030 goal. So maybe it is possible. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see what happens. Um, yep. I'm excited to see what Uber does to push this forward. I think companies like Tesla are licking their lips because of all the new orders are going to come yeah. through. Um, and so hopefully this really pushes the world forward. We need these big companies to really take bold action and really like really push this climate change agenda forward because otherwise we're going to get ourselves into a situation where it's too little, too late. Yep. And these companies, like we said in the past, have so much power. They have so much influence. We need them to step up like, like these guys are doing and putting their money where their mouth is and saying, this is a principle we believe in. We have to get to an electric future and uh, let's set ourselves an ambitious goal and let's throw the kitchen sink at it. Yeah, I completely agree, Barry. I do have one question for you though, because we know that Uber has the full range of offerings, right? You've got the pool, even in some countries, you've got the Uber, you've got the Uber Black, you've got the Uber XL. Do you think the Uber XL will be a Tesla Cybertruck? <laughs> Can you imagine pulling up to the club with your seven mates <laughs> in the Tesla Cybertruck? That would be so badass. Um, oh, that'd be amazing. That would be absolutely Also not amazing, practical Chad. at all because, you know, unless it's got a big no. canopy. Uh, but how cool would that be though, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh Chad I look forward to the day I look forward to that's going to be great I forgot about the Cybertruck oh I'm looking forward to that <laughs> let's then move on to our next segment Stuff I Found Interesting Chad you know every now and then you come across an article that you read and it just kind of it doesn't seem real and it just blows your mind for a second do you ever come across those? Yeah not as often as you Barry because I don't read as much as you <laughs> um, but yes I do every now and then uh, you know where something hits you and you're like, what the actual heck just happened? Uh, so talk us through this experience and what happened in your case. Yes, yeah, so I found this piece on something called the Three Gorges Dam in China. It is this ginormous engineering marvel, one of the biggest projects in the world yeah. in, in history, basically. And it's this ginormous dam that they built to try and create power, right, to create electricity for their people. And it would cost $30 billion to construct. Sure. And right from the very beginning, it was incredibly controversial because a lot of the, the scientists and the, and the ecologists and all these guys came out of the woodwork to say, hold on a minute, maybe the way you're building this is not the best. There were lots of talk about things like the dam traps pollution. It could spawn earthquakes oh, wow. and landslides. They had to move 1.3 million people. They had to like uproot them and move them somewhere oh, else God. because this dam is so ginormous. So it's, it's absolutely crazy to think about the scale. Try and give you some perspective. When it's at its maximum, the water floods 632 square kilometers, Chad. Sure. Just think about how much water that is. It is a ginormous, ginormous thing. And the clickbait title that got me into this, Chad, was this idea that this dam has changed the Earth's rotation. No way. It is, it is of such a size that has actually altered the way the Earth spins on its axis. How crazy is that? What the heck? That's insane. I mean, all of the, when it comes to all of these kinds of, you know, square kilometers or kilograms or whatever the metric is that you mentioned, I mean, I, I personally cannot even conceive that kind of amount. Um, but for me, it is fascinating that it's changed the rotation of the earth, especially when you think about the volumes of water that occupy the earth. How's it possible that a dam, which, you know, it might be big in the human sense of the word, 
But in terms of the, the greater context here, the earth, how can some extra water in the middle of another place of land change the rotation? That's where my science knowledge runs out, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think it's a great point. It's, 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 I don't understand how it happens. The, the, the best kind of description I can give is that, that the stat that I read was that it raises 39 trillion liters of water um, in, into the air, about 175 meters above sea level. And that raising and then letting it go down, because that's how you create right. momentum, which creates electricity at the end of the day, that's how you do it, right? So you raise huge amounts of water up to a level above sea level, you let it go down to sea level, and you run it through turbines to create power. Wow. So it creates an amazing amount of power. It creates the, the equivalent of 15 nuclear reactors in wow. this one dam. Wow. So it creates an incredible amount of power. And so you could look at that and say, maybe that's better than having 15 nuclear reactors that could blow up at any stage, right? But at the same time, all of this earthscaping and the way they built it and the way this wow. water is moving is changing that rotation of the earth. And we don't know what that does to the rest of the atmosphere. We don't know what it does to life on earth. It's one of those very kind of macro events that we never thought was possible. But as humans, we're finding more and more ways to do this permanent damage and permanent change to our earth that we have to be a little bit cautious about, I think. I agree. I completely agree. Um, I mean, just to think about 175 meters, what that actually means, that's a metric that I can understand, Barry. It's a lot smaller than the previous <laughs> one. Um, and also because, you know, we, we, we kind of, we're used to meters in, in terms of distance length. Um, and also when it comes to, to vertically, I own a drone. So whenever I fly up my drone, I personally don't ever go more than 50 meters high. Now I have a friend who is listening to this podcast right now. Hello, how's it going? Who flies very comfortably at much higher, uh, you know, altitudes, and has ultimately, I think, gone a few hundred meters above. Um, but for me, that's it, it's a crazy kind of number to just vision a waterfall. Essentially, I guess that's what this is. Um, going that kind of high and, and a man-made one at that. Yeah, it's it's. I don't think we can understand it until we actually see it or get a sense of what the scale is. But I think that the scale is too much. Based on what I've read, it sounds like it was an ill-conceived notion. And yeah. even the government has come out to say that they made some mistakes with the way wow. they built this thing. And, and so I think you have to be really careful about these sorts of ginormous economical structures that are changing the nature of how the earth works, right? Instead of taking advantage of your natural stuff, you're building these man-made dams that have all these other kind of side effects you don't, you don't realize. For the ecosystems, the animals, and the plants that lives in those regions, it really changed everything because all of a sudden you're changing the nature of how the water flows. And uh, just the fact that it changed the rotation just blows my mind and makes me realize that as humans, we are changing this earth in, in these permanent ways every single day with our actions. And uh, maybe not for good, maybe for bad sometimes. It's, it's, it's crazy to think about. Absolutely. And the fact that uh, we've not even heard about it, right? I've never heard about this before. Um, so, yeah, that is crazy. And I, I think it is definitely time to go and do some research on this uh, just to educate ourselves as well. Um, so thanks for bringing it to our attention, Barry. What was the other thing that you found interesting this past week? I was quite interested to read about it on your newsletter this past week. Again, anyone who's not signed up, do go and check out Barry's newsletter, which comes out every single Monday. And it's a really nice way of starting your week. We talk about momentum at the beginning of this episode. It's, it certainly starts you off on the right foot. Um, but this is essentially a movie that has won a lot of awards. It's not in English. Uh, we've spoken about it before. And as cinemas have been opening up, certainly here in the UK, uh, they've been screening some old movies. And, uh, well, I say old, I mean, it, it was this year or last year, <laughs> whatever the case is. Um, Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, Pre exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and I've been tempted to go and check it out as well. So keen to hear your thoughts on Parasite. Parasite was amazing, Chad. For me, like just right off the bat, it was my favorite movie of the year so far. Wow. I know I'm late to the party because, of course, this is a 2019 <laughs> movie. It, it caused a huge stir in the Oscars back yep. then. It won a lot of awards. It really is very highly acclaimed. And what made it unique, like you say, is that it's not in English, mm. right? It's very rare that a foreign movie like this makes such a big buzz in Hollywood and around the world in English-speaking countries. But Parasite definitely did that. And uh, I've been wanting to watch it for a while but never really got the opportunity. And then I saw it on DSTV Catch-Up the other day. Oh. And I was like, ha-ha. Now's my chance. And boy, am I glad that I did, Chad. It is such a masterful story that is told so incredibly well that the, uh, the fact that you have to read the subtitles doesn't actually matter because the story is that good. It just immerses you in this world. It has such great social commentary on kind of some of the topics it talks about. It is beautifully shot. It is, is wonderfully put together. And it's, it's honestly one of my favorite movies uh, that, uh, that I've ever seen. Wow. And in 2020, it's certainly the movie of the year for me that I've seen. So that has been really cool. I, I don't know how to talk about it without giving it away because some of the best parts about it are these unpredictable twists and turns. Okay. And so I have to be very careful as how I talk about the plot. But the actual movie itself, I think, is self-recommending. And if you haven't seen it, go and give yourself a chance to see this movie. It really is world-class. Amazing. And I'm just always so happy to, to hear those examples of your existing subscription finally delivering value. Um, <laughs> fairly timelessly. I mean, you know, historically, uh, DSTV has only delivered things uh, quite a while after they're off of the box office. So I'm glad that they're actually delivering something and you can actually watch it from the comfort of your own homes. If you are tuned in from South Africa, at least you know you can go check it out there. Also in the world, uh, surprisingly, Barry, you've got one up on me. Uh, we have to actually still pay to go and see it anywhere, uh, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, I'll certainly be one step closer to going and giving it a watch after that uh, that review and your favorite movie of the year. That's a big claim. Yeah, dude, it's 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 so unique in the way that it's done. It's it's very unlike a lot of typical Hollywood thrillers and Hollywood dramas. It's not a happy movie by any stage right. of the imagination. It's very very intense. Um, it's it almost reminded me a little bit of a Tarantino movie. Yeah but with more kind of nuance. It wasn't just gore for the sake of gore. It wasn't drama for the sake of drama. He, the, the director and the writer really were making a serious point about social classes, right. about inequality, about the rich and the poor and the divide between the two. And so I really resonated with it from a South African perspective because we see a huge gap here yeah. in, in the same way that they see in Korea. And so watching this kind of inequality story play out in a completely different world to my own, but see so many of the similar principles, the similar struggles, the similar kind of the gaps between the rich and the poor really was fascinating to see. And the whole the whole reason that it's, I mean, the whole fact that it's set in Korea, it's done in Korea, and it's got a very, very different feel to all traditional movies coming out of Hollywood, it's something unique that you don't see very often. And so that's why I think I loved it so much. Amazing. After hearing something like that, how can you not go and have it give it a watch? It does definitely sound like a must-see this year. Shall we move on to our next segment, Barry? Let's do it. Looking ahead. So, Barry, we've had quite the day. September the 15th, for me, has to be one of the biggest tech days of the year. Obviously, we have just unleashed all of our excitement on the Apple episode, which, you know, you'll see as a separate episode, and hopefully you did enjoy listening to. Uh, but the other thing that happened this week, as I said, today, September the 15th, as we record this episode, is Microsoft xCloud has been today made available on Android and uh, tablet devices which is an exciting day. Now, anyone who knows nothing about xCloud, that's completely okay. Essentially, it's the idea that you're playing on a console, but the console is sitting in the cloud. 
So ultimately, you could use your phone or your tablet uh, to connect into the cloud and uh, ultimately game without having to buy a console. It certainly is a very exciting prospect, but obviously there's all these kinds of challenges. Barry, what are your thoughts? Did you think it was this close to being released? I think it's quite exciting. And I think having seen Google Stadia being talked about in a couple couple of months ago, I think it, it is exciting to see it this early. Like yep. The fact that it's alive today is really amazing. Um, and I think it is the future of gaming as we look forward. For a long time, if you wanted to game, you had to buy these expensive gaming yep. PCs, these consoles, and get a lot of hardware in your room or in your living room to actually play these games. Mm -hmm. But with the internet speeds getting better and better and better, with 5G coming online, all of a sudden you can take advantage of the cloud, this idea that all of the hectic GPUs and the yep. graphics can happen in the cloud at these amazing data centers, and you just connect via Wi-Fi. And that that's pretty amazing. And, and really connect to a game that is being played in a different country, a different time zone to you. But the fact that the tech has got to that stage is really exciting. For someone who is a gamer to be able to play this from your phone or from your, your tablet, et cetera, is going to be really cool to see. Yep. And the big question is going to be, is the latency good enough right, to make it a real seamless experience? That's it. That's it. And if you've never heard of this word latency, it's a synonym essentially for delay. And ultimately that is the delay from you playing on your device to go to the cloud, to come back to you on your device. And I'm fascinated to see some of the actual demos coming through now that it's out there. But certainly very interesting. They've rolled it out with an offering of more than 150 games, Barry, which certainly sounds insane. And like you're talking about, I mean, when you look at actually getting into this gaming world, a lot of the time you're buying expensive hardware, but there's no getting away from the software costs. You always have to buy a game. And these days, even with the PlayStation, you have to buy like a membership if you want to play online with other people, uh, which is quite expensive. So for me, it makes sense for somebody coming new into this to skip the actual hardware cost. You're going to pay the software anyway, pay a little bit more, and uh, it actually gives you the ability of getting into this arena. It's very much the Netflix of gaming, yeah. right? Is the, the idea that instead of buying the movies outright, instead of storing them on your hard drive or downloading them from some sort of device, you're just going to stream them and you, you let them be hosted by somebody else and at, at demand, on demand, whatever you want, at whatever time you want, you can kind of log into that kind of world. Yeah. And so I think it is a very interesting move for gaming companies. It's going to change the entire economic model, like you say. Definitely. Instead of spending all this money up front for investing all the tech and all the software, you might be able to pay a subscription fee every single month and just get access to like you say 150 games yeah. as opposed to being able to only spend on four or five games and being stuck in your own home to do it so yeah it's really an interesting thing to see i think that if the latency is not good enough it can be a very frustrating experience especially if you're playing first person shooters or you're playing sure. kind of very fast games it can be very frustrating and so the user experience here is what's going to matter you can have all the games in the world you can have the best names you can have all the big franchises but if the actual experience it gets a bit glitchy or isn't perfect they can be re really be in a world of hurt and so I'm excited to see what it's going to look like, Chad, and see if the latency is good enough, especially with decent Wi-Fi, to make yeah. this thing a possibility. Because if it does, then it changes everything in the, in the gaming world. Absolutely. And although it's going to be a very, very exciting space to watch, I certainly don't think it's the end of the console. Microsoft, alongside this, have released the Xbox Series S and Series X, both of which I know nothing about. Um, but of course, there's extra <laughs> consoles on the market, hardware. Like you said, there's going to be people who are going to want uh, the, the 4K graphics that you just can't get on a phone or a tablet um, that you need, that you actually physically need the hardware for. Um, and so that's definitely not dead. But a very, very interesting arena to watch for the future to see how this changes. I think the last discussion point on this, Barry, is to talk about the fact that it's only released on Android 
not on iOS. And this goes back to <laughs> our previous discussions about Apple and their precious baby, the App Store and their commissions. Yeah, same old story, right? Same old story that they don't want anyone else to be able to platformize their stuff. They don't want Microsoft to be able to sell a subscription service through the iOS ecosystem that then accesses a whole bunch of other games. So as far as I understand, they kind of want the game creators to go individually to Apple and go through their normal App Store process and do all of that good stuff. And that kind of defeats the point of what Microsoft are yeah. trying to create. So again, it's this, it's this battle between the closed ecosystem of Apple and what they're able to do versus this open ecosystem of kind of an well, open source mindset where you can get access to a whole range of stuff and do whatever you want with your phone, with your device, rather than this very, very closed garden. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's see what happens there. I'm certainly going to be keeping the popcorn at the ready because um, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to see what happens. Let's then move on to our last segment. Develop and grow. So develop and grow, the part of our podcast. We talk about improvement, Barry. We talk about just observations, I guess, in physical health, mental health, all of that kind of stuff, becoming better people. And I suppose the wider kind of genre of our whole podcast is kind of self-improvement in, in the sense of knowing what's happening in the world, knowing what's coming, improving yourself from that element. But then we also talk about these direct kind of things as well. Um, so yeah, we do certainly offer quite a lot on Across the Pond. This week, though, it's going to sound a little bit silly, um, but I am going to talk about my experience of having a dog over the weekend. So those little wonderful furry friends, Barry. Um, I don't know. Do you have any dogs at home? I don't. Our complex doesn't allow ah. it. But I get, I get once a week when I go to my parents, I get yeah. to visit their dogs. And it's one of the best parts of the week. And so I'm very jealous. When I saw those photos, they were so adorable. Oh, tell me about it. This particular dog is even more adorable because it actually has its own Instagram page. It really is a photogenic <laughs> dog, if you get anything like that. Um, really, really cute. The uh, page is actually named after the Ewok, the character in uh, Star Wars, because it, it kind of does. It looks like Chewbacca. There's a post, Barry, of it <laughs> putting its head outside the window, and you just see all the fur on the face. It Literally, I, I was like, that is Chewbacca. So it's an apt uh, handle uh, for this particular little dog. But anyway, we had some friends who were going away for the weekend and they wanted to essentially have someone look after their dog. And we said, yes, absolutely. We'd love to have it. And so we had it over for the weekend. Barry uh, was able to enjoy the benefits again of having a pet, um, certainly for a short period of time. And, uh, and ultimately, what I noticed were a few fundamental things. Firstly, pets just elevate your mood. They just make you feel better. There's something about talking in that high-pitched voice that nobody wants to listen to uh, and you sound absolutely ridiculous uh, definitely not masculine at all um, but it just lifts your mood and uh, it just kind of makes anything that you're going through in your day just seem completely trivial um, so it's really really important i think just to have just animals and, and be able to interact in that kind of way don't you think Especially dogs, right? Especially yeah. dogs, because they have this—they have this unconditional love yeah. that really does not care about how your day at work <laughs> was. It doesn't care about your social status. Yeah. Doesn't care about like how you're feeling. They just love you no matter what. And there's something so pure and so wonderful about that feeling mm. of, of something in your life that, that that doesn't require Instagram followers, right, or money <laughs> or any of that stuff. They just—they they are unconditional yeah. in every single way. And uh, like you say, it just brings you into a different state of mind. It makes you forget about some other stuff, and you can be present 
present with this little creature. Um, and it, it's such an amazing part of life, especially like there's a reason that dogs have such an important piece of humanity, right? They are man's best friend and they really do form an important part of kind of mental stability for our generation and for the whole world is this idea that you have this part of your family that you love to bits and that just gives you that unconditional support at any st- any time of day or night. Completely. You're completely right. Anyone who's had a dog growing up, um, it's just such a, a great reminder, I guess, when you've moved to a country or moved to a place, a city like London, uh, where owning pets is so hard. You don't have those backyards. And even if you do have a garden, the temperature is is different. You know, you ultimately would have to spend money on having dog sitters if you're not at home the whole time. And so it is a different backdrop. And I'm I'm quite sad about that because... Being able to have that dog for the weekend uh, definitely made me realize again, uh, you know, how much joy they can bring to your lives. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to chat about is is just health, the indirect effects of having a dog, and the fact that having one in London certainly forces you to be more active. You have to go and take the dog out for a walk to go and do its number ones and go and do its number twos. Uh, there's playtime. <laughs> there's all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it just made me think about this idea of uh, wait, but why? Uh, one of Barry's favorite uh, blogs, and you know, I've certainly enjoyed a lot of the posts in the past. This idea that you live inside your body, which is actually your pet, <laughs> and you must ultimately take care of your body. You must take care of your pet, and you're kind of, I don't know, spirit, if you'd like, Barry. Definitely correct me if I'm if I've got this wrong. Um, but it, no, spot yeah, it, it ultimately. You know, it harks on that idea and by taking yourself and this dog out for a little walk, it, it just has made me rethink how I start my days, how I start my morning. So this morning, I didn't have enough time to go to gym, but I actually got out and I went for a walk around the block. And it's better than nothing because a walk around the block is still some fresh air. It's a good way to start the day. Uh, it's taking my pet for a walk. Um, and, and I think it's important and I think it's something that I'll, I'll be rolling out in the future. It's such a beautiful way to look at it. And I, I love that metaphor of the, of the pets because that's exactly what it is, right? When you have a dog, you're taking on this responsibility yep. to care for something else. And you've got this very, very real, like it, it's staring you in the face. <laughs> it's barking at you. It wants to, to be fed and to be loved and to be walked and all that good stuff. Yep. And so it's a very, very obvious reminder that you have to take care of this thing. And when we have responsibility, we take on responsibility, a very kind of Jordan Peterson type yep. idea. We, we act on it because we have to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately in our own lives we sometimes forget about the responsibility we have for ourselves yep. we forget to take care of ourselves our mental health our physical health and so the dog is a nice kind of manifestation of that Definitely. responsibility and I like the idea of thinking of your own body in the same way this kind of bag of meat and bones is what <laughs> carries you through life right and so even though we feel like we're living in our heads if the actual body isn't doing what it should do you can't live the kind of life that you want to live and so it's so important to think about that stuff and to really take care of it and realize that you have a responsibility as your mind, as your brain, you have a responsibility to take care of the kind of the space suit that you've got on <laughs> to make sure that you can live as long as possible, as healthily as possible. And uh, yeah, it's such a cool way to look at it. Absolutely. And not just on the physical side and actually going out for a walk, et cetera, doing exercise, that kind of stuff, because we do need to look after that part of ourselves as well. Um, but just to touch on your newsletters week as well and, and what we're eating. If the dog goes onto the floor and, and starts grabbing something that's, you know, foreign, something that you, you don't know what it is, ultimately with a dog, it's so easy to say, no, don't eat that. You know, I'm feeding you your very specific food. You're on your own specific diet, etc. And yet for ourselves, we find it, it's a different story. We find that we can feed ourselves whatever we feel like eating. Um, and potentially we need to be a little bit more restrictive on our diet. 
Exactly, Jad. It's very easy to give advice. It's very easy to like do things for other people. You can see it's wrong. Yep. With ourselves, we have this blind spot. We have this thing that gets in our way. Our mind rationalizes things <laughs> that we shouldn't be doing, yep. things we know are wrong, things are, we know we're going to regret in the future. Um, and that's a great way to look at it. Try and think about, try and be objective about yourself in whatever way you can. Can you kind of step out of your body and look at yourself from a third perspective yep. and say, is this the right thing I should be doing with my time right now? Should I really be opening that bag of chips? Should I really <laughs> be sitting on the couch for my 18th Netflix series oh. in a row? Like, like these sorts of things that we get ourselves into these spirals. If you can be objective towards yourself and, and think about like, what is my pet doing right now? And is it the right thing for that person or that thing? Um, it's, a, it's a nice little re reframe, yeah. reset for our brain. And hopefully that helps you to make better decisions on a small day-to-day -day basis. Um, but also the same points, when the dog makes a mistake, when it does something wrong, you love it unconditionally, yep. Yep. right? You, yep. you, you, you give it that kind of that kindness and you, and you realize it wasn't done out of malice, yep. you just made a mistake. 100%. We need to do that with ourselves as well. We need to be able to forgive ourselves and kind of be kind to ourselves when things go wrong. And uh, it's very easy to do with someone else because that's the empathetic thing to do. But for some reason, in our own self-talk, in our own head, we can become our worst nightmare. We can really kind of beat ourselves up about something we've done in the past. Yep. So it's both of that. It's it's holding yourself accountable and kind of s accountable to what you want to do and what kind of person you want to be, yep. but also realizing that you're going to make mistakes. And when you do... We don't kick the dog and throw it out of the house, yeah. right? We kind of say, it's okay. We'll teach you how to do it better next time. We have to do that ourselves. Wow. What a place to end our podcast. I love that. Um, you're so right, Barry. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can implement some of those changes. I feel a bit guilty right now because as we're about to end this episode, I've got a bowl of frozen yogurt waiting outside for me. <laughs> so I'm going to rationalize that, but... Um, you know, I'll get better, Barry. I'll get better. I promise. Enjoy it, Chad. Enjoy it. And you can go to gym tomorrow. How about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you again for listening to us. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed. I think we had such a great day of recording. We love doing this. I'm feeling a lot happier than I was before. Hope you are too, Barry. Please go and check out our social media pages as well. We are on Twitter at across underscore podcast, Instagram at across the pond cast, and on Facebook at across the pond podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Pond, across the pond.